begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer attributed to Pope St. Gregory the Great. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I beseech you, Lord Jesus Christ, that your passion may be a strength for me, by which I may be fortified, protected, and defended. May your wounds be food and drink for me, by which I may be fed, inebriated, and delighted. May the sprinkling of your blood be an ablution of all my sins. May your death be eternal glory for me. In these may refreshment, health, zeal, joy, delight, and desire of my body and soul be mine now and forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim, we're heading to the archives today to share with you some of the best interviews that we've had in days past. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Elizabeth Scalia, editor-at-large for Word on Fire Ministries and author of the book, Little Sins Mean a Lot, Kicking Our Bad Habits Before They Kick Us. Elizabeth, welcome back. Good morning. And today we're going to be talking about phoning it in. Uh, You have a different bit of vocabulary in the book that that we're not going to use because there are some little impressionable ears listening. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I was set to read and be convicted about how I phone it in at work, right? And then, Elizabeth, you totally ripped out my heart because now I am reflecting on how I phone in my motherhood. Yeah, well, this was not a nice thing for me to write about either. I thought about it, and I remembered that when my son was little, my oldest son, and we're going back 35 years now, um, remember arcades. You know, my son loved them, and when he was five or six, we'd go to the mall, and it would be, Mommy, Mommy, can I have a quarter? Can I play the games? And if I had three quarters, yes, of course. And he would be so excited, and he'd be telling me, you know, all about the game while he was playing it, and this spaceship was going to do this to that one or whatever. And, And I'd be standing there my eyes glazed over. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, right. Spaceship. Got it, babe. And, you know, I was just phoning it in. And I was thinking of it as an intrusion to to be with my son while he did this. And I'm sure even though he was five or six, he was completely aware of it. In fact, both of my sons have told me when they discussed video games with me, they could watch my eyes glaze over. And then I would go right into phone it in mode. Um, and that is not a nice thing to reflect on. In the moment, you say, oh, it's not a big deal. But 15, 20 years down the road, when your kids are not little and like that anymore and the time has passed, it's rough to sit back and look at the times you were not fully present to your child, really not engaged with what they were doing because you've missed it now. Now it's over. And they knew that you weren't really engaged. They knew you weren't really paying attention. And that's left its mark, too. So, yes, that is awful, awful, awful. And I convict myself with that. 
Roma, the next time that you talk about unicorn princesses, I am going to look up from my computer screen and actually pay attention to you. I am feeling so guilty right now, Elizabeth. And and with what you just said in mind, I am going to read this quote from St. Jose Maria Escriva that you have in your chapter here. You drag along like a bag of sand. You don't do your share. And so it's not strange that you are beginning to feel the first symptoms of lukewarmness. Wake up. He's such a pain in the neck, that guy. I know. I tell you what. I mean, this this bringing about a, a conversation that we can have on the deadly sin of acedia, which is what you connect to this idea of phoning it in, you know, sloth. The thing is, you let this creep in in small ways, like not looking up from your smartphone as your kid's telling you a story about what happened at school today. It's only a matter of time before this takes up more and more of your life. Oh, absolutely. In in fact, I relate a story in in the chapter. One of my sons came home from McDonald's, you know, some years ago. He was really, really upset. He said, Ma, watch this, this little cute little kid. He's like four years old. He's eating his Happy Meal, and he's chattering and chattering to his mother, who's not paying attention, because she's scrolling, scrolling, scrolling on the phone. And finally, he got up on his knees, took his mother's face in his hands to try to direct her face toward him to get her to listen. But she was dismissive, and she kept looking at her phone and scrolling, scrolling, and the little boy sat down, stopped eating, stopped talking. He just sat there very glum. And um, my son came home, and he was like, well, I really wanted to say to that lady, pay attention to him. And I felt terrible because I was like, yeah, sure, because you know what it's like to have a mother doing that. And I just uh, devastated again. But this is about maturity and mindfulness, about seeing things and people in their completeness and pursuing completeness in everything you're doing, including paying attention to the little person in front of you. It encourages laziness and inattention. And this is what really brings about the sloth. And it's really rooted in selfishness as well. As I said in the book, every single little sin we talk about has its root in greater sins mm-hmm. and, and multiple sins. And this is one of those. This is sloth. This is selfishness. This is sinful inattention. Symptoms of a much bigger problem that we may not realize is happening behind the scenes. When it comes to beating this sin, you offer the advice to do God's work. What does that mean? It's really funny. Everybody thinks do God's work. That means go out and help the poor and, you know, go build a house for somebody. And and all of that is is certainly doing God's work. But the thing that we forget is that what is in front of us at any particular moment is really God's work. There's an actual wonderful quote from Jean-Pierre de Cossard in Abandonment to Divine Providence. He, He writes, the active practice of fidelity consists in accomplishing the duties which devolve upon us, whether imposed by the general laws of God or of the Church or by the particular state that we may have embraced. Its passive exercise consists in the loving acceptance of all that God sends us at each moment. Wow. I was really struck when I read that because it suddenly made me realize that whatever we're doing of a moment is the work of God that He has placed before us. And this is something as Benedictine Oblet ingrained upon us within the rule, which is if you're closing a window, you lock it. If you're putting a broom away, you put it away. You don't just launch it somewhere into the garage, which is my habit. Um, Anything that's before you of a moment, changing a diaper, making a cup of tea for your mom, uh, this is the work of God that has been placed before you in your station. And once you surrender to that idea, 
it's very hard to phone it in. Don't have the luxury mm-hmm. of making a, a, a secondary job of it because we'll be graded on this. Yeah, I'm going to be graded more on how I uh, serve my children than on the really awesome idea for a tweet that I yeah, have. Yeah, I I, I'm kind of wondering how many we have. How much time in purgatory am I going to do for sending my kid to school with peanut butter and jelly three, four, five days in a row because that was simplest. I found this really interesting, too. Um, you have a quote in here from, from St. Teresa of Avila about combating acedia and using the Psalms. Can you explain? Her great advice when, when asked, you know, how do you combat acedia? She said, psalmody, psalmody, psalmody. And the great thing about Psalms is that they are a perfect reflection of the human condition. Mm-hmm. So whatever we're feeling of a moment, we're going to be able to find reflected in the Psalms, and it's very reassuring, because first it tells us that nothing we're experiencing is unique to the world. Um, second, it gives us permission to cry out to God in every state that we're in, even if we're in a really foul mood. I mean, there are some dark Psalms in there. We're told when the, with the Psalms that, yes, we can bring all of that to God and leave it with God. In, in our state of prayer. We can also, of course, bring our praise and our exaltations and our gratitudes. Everything that we feel is reflected in the Psalms, and they are a perfect means of reconnecting to what it is you're feeling, what's affecting your spirit. And if you sit with the Psalms, you'll start to find out that, yeah, this, this line here about the, the mouths being an open grave, well, that's, that's making me feel very much in touch with the feelings of of frustration that I had when I found out I was being gossiped about. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how you start to work through the things that have been dragging you down. It starts with psalmody. Spoken like a true Benedictine. <laughs> you know, actually, um, this is interesting. I heard a really interesting insight about um, praying the Liturgy of the Hours, actually, which might make, which we might be able to take a step further in uh, what you were just saying there, because you were kind of going into, like, we can open up the book of Psalms and we can find anything that corresponds to our emotions. I heard this insight that in praying the Liturgy of the Hours, and I think this was an insight from a, from a Benedictine monk, actually, um, being quoted to me, that if you follow the Liturgy of the Hours and what the church lays out, you are actually submitting your own feelings, putting it under the church. Let the church choose the psalm for you. And you'll eventually get to whatever emotion you're feeling um, because, you know, of course, if you go through the Liturgy of the Hours, you're going to be praying all of the psalms. Um, So just, uh, just an extra little thing there that an extra little sacrifice, which is going to lead us seamlessly into uh, the next part of the conversation here. But you are so smooth. Making that sacrifice of, of submitting to the church and and just having that, that little extra way to, to combat acedia in a way, using the psalmody. Now, speaking of sacrifice, I mean, you talk about making a daily sacrifice, like daily, not just Fridays and Lent. Elizabeth, that sounds that sounds awful. Well, I'm not talking specifically about uh, meatless meals every day either. Sure. Uh, what, what I really mean is that, you know, when we talk about how do we break this habit um, and how do we defeat the, the tendencies towards sloth, um, 
I have found, and I, and I recommend it in the book because it's something that I have found works for me, is to make a daily sacrifice. Um, and by that, it, it can be something really, really small, like the second cup of coffee, or in my case, the third cup of coffee. A half hour watching Scrubs when I could be doing a rosary. <laughs> um, yeah, something I like love that. You. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just some some little self indulgence, and, and it doesn't have to be something anyone else knows about either. Saying, you know what, I'm not going to pick up my phone right now. I'm going to offer up a, a prayer for the people who are online who I know are ill, or something like that, some little thing. It just has a tendency to pull you away from yourself, focus somewhere else, particularly on something godly or, or toward God. And that can really help you become more mindful overall because you're thinking of something outside of yourself. There's actually a really great quote in the book, um, Reformation should begin with small sacrifices, but be faithful and consistent in their performance. Don't bite off too much at once. Just as exercise restores a lost muscle tone, a daily sacrifice will restore spiritual vigor and vitality. It will increase your joy in living, too. I have found this by a passionist priest, Father Killian McGowan. I have found this to be completely true. Yeah, well... If little sins mean a lot, then just think about how much little sacrifices mean. Oh, that's good. A whole lot more. A whole lot more. That's good. Because the Lord rewards it. We've been talking to Elizabeth Scalia. The book is called Little Sins Mean a Lot. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Always great to talk to you, Annie. Likewise. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. It's back to school time and back to a busier morning routine. If you're going to need some help to get going, get yourself a few bags of Mystic Monk coffee. And when you go to the Mystic Monk site through the link you find at sunrisemorningshow.com, you'll give us a boost with a commission on your purchase. While you're at our site, pick up a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug and perhaps a water bottle for your student. All available in our online store. Find our store and link to Mystic Monk coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. Tony the Theologian, Chris the Entrepreneur, and Joe the Farmer are the Rome Boys. In each of their podcasts, they take a timely topic and discuss it from three different perspectives. You can hear Rome Boys as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free at EWTN Podcast Central. Visit EWTNradio.net slash podcasts today. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Pastoral Counselor Kevin Prendergast. Kevin, good morning. Good morning, Matt. So some people would say 
smartphone and social media use causes ADHD. I don't know if we can necessarily definitively prove that through the data, but if you've got attention deficit issues, I can't imagine that checking Twitter and Tumblr and Instagram and Snapchat all day really helps. That's exactly it, Matt. So there's several studies over the past several years. And the things that you're kidding the exact big point is uh, correlation and causation are two different things. So two things can be related, but one doesn't necessarily cause the other. But it's interesting when we look at uh, what what do we mean by this? So when does uh, use of the Internet or social media become excessive? So there's two big things. is, is when I lose control over this behavior, I can't reliably, predictably control the amount of time and, you know, when I'm using it. And the other one is impairment. So with kids, we know with teenagers that certainly there's a big correlation between smartphone use and the time on social media and sleep. So our teenagers have had a significant decrease in sleep, roughly comparable to the same time when smartphones have become so widely universally used. So when we we see our kids are not sleeping, their grades are going down, uh, they're more irritable. So we've got some impact on uh, how they're performing or their interpersonal relationships. You know, and the other thing is we don't know for sure. There is not actually agreement that there's such a thing as Internet addiction or social media addiction, but we look at Internet use disorder. So what, what would that be? So it's, again, those issues of control and impairment. And when we, we've got some criteria for that, and the World Health Organization is moving more in that direction in terms of making that an official disorder. So with the general population, like kids in grade school and high school, about 5% of those kids meet the criteria for Internet use disorder. Uh, about 15% of kids in college. But then when we look at the ADHD population, about one out of four kids with ADHD are more prone to get into that. Why would that be? Because, you know, gaming, any any kind of social media, just surfing the Internet, it's very rapidly changing images, keeps your attention. There's immediate reward. And the interesting thing that comes out from some of these studies about ADHD kids is that it also helps them to relax. And that's an interesting finding because that's not true with all kids that use social media or gaming. So there's something going on. Maybe a kid has some increased anxiety, depression that's correlated with ADHD. So the takeaway for parents is, one, uh, the American Pediatrics Association has some pretty good guidelines that they've developed. They have a family media plan. Whether or not you think your kid has ADHD, it would be a good time just to sit down, not in an angry way, reactive way, or a punishing way, but just to come up with what's our guidelines as a family, for example, having a technology-free time at dinner time or doing homework or no technology in the bedroom. Uh, and we know that 71% of teens have devices in their bedroom every night. And the second thing would be if we do have a kid that's been diagnosed maybe with a pediatrician foot with ADHD, we really want to monitor and put some clear limits on that. And, and even though we're going to get pushback, it's going to be for the benefit of our child because that's going to get, get worse. Medication helps somewhat, but also getting your, your child into a good therapist that's familiar with ADHD because pills won't teach skills. And that's another thing about ADHD persons is they're deficient in some skills, concentration, planning, study skills. Well, you know, Kevin, I grew up in the 80s into the 90s. Back then, there were kind of two main trains of thought. One was if your kid shows the first sign of attention deficit disorder, put them on Ritalin. The other camp was there's no such thing as attention deficit disorder. You're just a bad parent who doesn't know how to discipline your kids. If you just paddle them, they'd get in line. (laughs) 
And uh, thankfully, we know a little more now than we did when it was kind of those two main trains of thought. Yeah, that's right, Matt. And I think the other part here is uh, I feel that uh, parents have, have two problems. One is we need to monitor our own use of technology and set a good example. And, and so there's got to be an impact of there'll be another interesting study, social media and marital satisfaction, you know, and what's the, how, what's the impact of one on the other, right? The other one is kids are watching us, so if we have no limits, what kind of a model are we setting? And the other one that I would just challenge our parents is I talk to so many parents in my office who have just given up. They say, I can't fight it. You know, all their peers are using it. They're going to be ostracized. We have too many battles. I'm just tired of, of having this arm wrestling contest every night about the smartphone. It's not going to have these fights. And I think that's abandoning our adult role. So we have to be able to engage. But this is where prayer comes in for us parents. We got to we got to do this without anger and without being punitive. And the only way we can do that is with grace, right? We want to do it in a charitable, loving, kind way. But but kindness doesn't mean that we don't set limits, too, right? So that's something to take to the Lord and and talk with someone, one of our spiritual advisors, to see how can we approach this and get our spouse on board. As well. And what you said earlier, I think, is so sound uh, that here's a chance to do a fresh start. Personal goals, right? Reset everything. So thank you so much, Kevin. We really appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Matt. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonricemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sonricemorningshow.com. This is Father Rob Jack with the Heart of St. Paul. St. Paul was known for his great courage, compassion, and zeal for spreading the gospel. He was also known as having a bit of a temper. Paul does not hesitate to raise his voice when he sees Christians in danger. In chapter 3 of the letter to the Galatians, St. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? These people of Galatia were being tempted to turn away from Christ and back to the Jewish law. And this movement was succeeding. Paul is beside himself that the Galatians seem to be rejecting Christ. He sees the seriousness of their action while they do not appear to see it. To move away from Christ Jesus, once you have accepted the faith, is a dangerous thing that has serious consequences. To move away from Jesus or desire things other than Jesus is to move away from salvation. The action of the people of Galatia produced some harsh words from St. Paul. These words were not meant to wound, but to help them wake up and see what they have and what they have given away if they turn away from Christ. And we hear this from the heart of St. Paul. With us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Helen Alvarez, who teaches family law and law and religion, among other things, at George Mason University, and Erica Bakiaki, who is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute and author 
of the book, The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Ladies, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Hi there. Now, the New York Times recently published a story showing that while we had been seeing for some time a drop in the birth rate among more educated, upper-middle-class women focusing on careers, there's now a significant drop in all women, including lower-income women, who apparently also want to focus on their careers and see children as an obstacle to that. Dr. Alvare, I want to start with you. Does, does this surprise you? What do you make of this? Gosh, it's existential, and I mean that both as a pun mm-hmm. and as philosophy. This is, you know, no way to blame or judge any individual person. But it, it, is, it is troubling. Uh, on the one hand, it's great that people are not having non-marital pregnancies and thinking about when they're able to take care of children. This is awesome. On the other hand, you very much see in that article, you know, what is true about the United States, that it's more of an economy than a culture. <laughs> yeah. and, and they really are speaking very much about they're responding to the economy. You, two things uh, I wonder about. One, the, the lifelong formation of a person more as a me than as a we. You know, they're going to be getting married later, if married at all. They're going to be having children later. What does this mean when you spend so much more of your lifetime as a me versus a a, a we? Second, the Catholic implications of this. Um, I'm just finishing a book thinking about this in the context of religious freedom, the, the whole question of family and sexual expression, but even just to focus on the family in particular, it is a model for how we think about our relationship with God. You know, we're his children. He is our father. We have a father and mother in heaven. The, the marriage is an image of God's relationship with the church. What does it mean when you lose this experience? Mm. So these are some of the thoughts, just a few. Wow. Well, I want that book, Dr. Alvare <laughs> and Erica. I, I want your book, too, after learning a little bit about it. Tell us a little bit about how the vision of your book, The Rights of Women, could contribute to this conversation. Yeah, so it's an intellectual history of the cause of women's rights, uh, starting with the 18th century British philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft and working kind of all the way up to our time. And it really showcases her vision and the vision of the earliest women's rights advocates in our country, that our rights are really better understood as grounded in and born of the duties we owe one another. And so I think what you've seen is sort of a shift from, as Helen was talking about, you know, sort of the we, you know, community that is, um, that we're bonded together by these intersecting responsibilities that we owe to one another, of course, first and foremost in the family. And we've seen this shift to kind of this understanding of like a market equality, where women and men, you know, achieve equality through how much money they make or their prestige or their professional life. And we've lost this really critical understanding um, that the work of the home, you know, the care we give our children, um, the virtues, you know, that we instill in our children and that we end up instilling in ourselves as we do that, um, is really foundational to all other work. And that's something that, you know, these earliest women's rights advocates very well understood um, that we've really lost today. And so there's, as Helen says, you know, this kind of moving with the way the market wants us to rather than really seeing uh, this, this work of the home is foundational to all other goods and really make those goods possible. Well, I know that you talk a lot about Justice, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and and also Marianne Glendon, who should be very well known to our listeners. 
can you just sort of tell us about the difference in in their vision of of woman in society? Sure. I mean, it's a a very complicated, uh, long part of my book. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, is known for her kind of trailblazing work um, in the early 1970s, where she uh, helped the court understand that women should not be discriminated on the basis of sex. And I really applaud that work. But she has a real libertarian strain that leads her to see autonomy, women's autonomy, as sort of key to their equality and their fulfillment, and that leads her to think that abortion is necessary for women's equality, because I think she thinks of, as I said, this kind of market equality as being key. Uh, Marion Glendon, on the other hand, understands very well as from a communitarian perspective or, you know, really a Catholic perspective, what I, you know, said before, which is that the goods of the family, what's everything that's sort of learned in the family, the responsibilities that are learned there, um, the solidarities, those very early solidarities first in, you know, uh, pregnancy, of course, and in marriage, um, that those really underlie every other good. And so we really need those first. We need to focus on those first. And, um, of course, she would find abhorrent, as Helen and I do, this idea that women's equality relies on uh, abortion rights in any way, because really, you know, we're tearing at that first equality between the mother and the child, but then we're also sort of using um, abortion, uh, you know, we're piling piling up fetuses, basically, uh, for women to achieve market equality, and I think that's really the wrong way of going about it, and certainly does a disservice to all caregivers who need to be recognized for the, for the, the work they're doing and not, and not, you know, think that they should have to give up uh, the life of their child to, to get there. Dr. Alvare, how does enshrining legal abortion actually undermine the goals of feminism? Right. You know, um, Erica, myself, Teresa uh, Collette, and another professor at Catholic U, um, Elizabeth Kirk, together wrote a brief to the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case. And um, we talked about that a lot. Erica and I have both written about that a good deal in the past. The idea that a woman's ability to become pregnant, her carrying a child, her rearing a child, is, is, a, is a, an opportunity cost um, that she is missing out on the market, She's missing out on sort of the ideal male worker's lifestyle, that is, a person who's not interrupting their work life for children. Um, The the fact that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, as Erica said, had so much good in her career toward the equality of women, then eventually says, listen, you can't even be an equal citizen if you don't have the option to get rid of your children in this way by abortion. It it posits children as the enemy as, instead of being the human race, everybody, one of us, um, the care of children, it posits that as being um, a problem. Um, it, it's a terrible cultural statement as well as a legal statement. It just, it is absolutely the signal that the U.S. is not really a family culture. It, it is an economy, but it's not got the whole family culture. We can think of other countries that we know of that not only have better family policies, but where the culture just supports children. When, when I'm in Italy and, you know, I say I'm buying gifts for my kids and I'll say I have three, their eyebrows shoot up like, oh, my God, how do you match? <laughs> Imagine if Erica goes to Italy, you know, <laughs> what they're going to say to her. Um, we, we just don't have this sort of mutual understanding that this is a beautiful way to spend your life. It's not to say at all that women don't also belong in society, and they do, and they're, they're, 
your ability to take care of children makes them more fit, not less, to understand and respond to so much of what is going on. But it really is the case in the U.S. that we're not a family culture. Erica mm-hmm. makes the point in her book that Marianne Glendon says, gee, we don't even have a family policy. We really, we don't have a, here's what we'd like to see, here's how we shore up families, here's how government spending, government policy, tax policy, um, all kinds of policy, zoning policy, um, work policy, takes care of the family. Um, I wrote an article about it years ago called Curbing Its Enthusiasm, the U.S. Mm -hmm. government and federal family policy. There just isn't one. And it's this latest, you know, young women's reaction to the question of whether to have children is a sign that they really understand that this is not a pro-family culture. Well, Dr. Alvarez, some may be thinking, though, like, how how do we change this? I mean, I, I look at uh, this hypothetically, you know, I, I'm looking at my work situation, and I would love for it to be more family-friendly, but my family needs two incomes to get along, and I don't want to get fired. I don't want to get overlooked by, you yeah. know, for, for a raise or, or for a promotion because I'm going against the grain and asking for a more family-friendly situation. I mean, what do you have to say about yeah. that mentality? Exactly. Well, and I know what that's like. I mean, I lived through that in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. You know, now my children are grown. But... Um, it is a terrible feel that the when I was reading Erica's book, I said all in caps in my head, I was screaming, "It is impossible for women to figure this out one by one." You know, it is absolutely impossible. They have to join together on this as a cause. You know, it's the equivalent of a labor union for women thinking about uh, family and work. If we don't do this together, we have absolutely no power at all. We're just individuals uselessly waving our fist at the system saying, you really need to value my family, and we can be picked off one by one. It has to be part of a unified women's movement. We're getting somewhere as more women are raising this. You see it time after time, raised as some tantalizing new policy we're going to get at the federal or state level. It's not enough to have X weeks of unpaid leave or just a few weeks even of paid leave. It has to be an entire set of policies that say, we're happy you're having children, we're happy you want to take care of them, both husbands and wives, and we're going to make this work for you. Um, But it's got to become like through Erica's book and other women rattling their sabers to say this has to be part of a unified voice of women because they do need to work. They want to be in society, but they want to put their families first, and that's just not available to too many. Well, let's continue rattling that sword here on the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm going to have to have both of you back to uh, to continue this conversation, Dr. Helen Alvarez and Erica Bakiaki and Erica, if listeners want to check out your book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, where can they find it? Well, they, of course, can find it on places like Amazon, but better uh, to go to Notre Dame University Press and buy it right from the publisher. All right. Notre Dame University Press. We'll have the book linked at sunrisemorningshow.com as well. Ladies, thank you so much for your contribution to this conversation today. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll hit a break here. It's 35 minutes past the hour.
You listen to the Sunrise Morning Show? Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com, L-E-A-H, at sacredheartradio.com. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Hello, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney from Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish, inviting you to take a moment to reflect on words from the Catechism of the Catholic Church about Mary, the mother of Jesus. In paragraph number 490 of the Catechism, we read the following. To become the mother of the Savior, Mary was enriched by God with gifts appropriate to such a role. The angel Gabriel, at the moment of the Annunciation, salutes her as full of grace. The opening words of one of the church's favorite prayers, the Hail Mary, provides us a lesson for life. The prayer tells of Mary being filled with God's graces, and thus he is with her. We know that God is with us all, at all times. But we sometimes lose sight of that fact. We especially don't think of God as being with us when we allow ourselves to stray away from him through sin. Another part of this prayer asks Mary, the mother of God, to pray for us sinners. Through her prayerful intercession, may God enrich our lives with his grace that we might be more like Mary. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. One of our most fun and practical segments on the Sunrise Morning Show is our Bible food segment with Rita Heikenfeld of AboutEating.com. Good morning, Rita. Well, good morning, and, and you're right, especially today. You and Annie, we've all been through this. Oh, we have. And actually, I've been fortunate enough to be on the receiving and giving end when it comes to someone who's had a new baby or maybe has had a death in the family or maybe has had surgery recently. And generally speaking, I think we would all agree it's a nice thing to do to take food to somebody. But there's actually a scriptural basis for this kind of hospitality. Yeah, and several places. The one that a lot of people are familiar with, it's in Romans in chapter 12, verse 13. It says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And then there's one in in Matthew. This is very familiar. I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. And then my favorite, Matt, is in Hebrews. It's in chapter 13. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So I just love that. But hospitality doesn't just mean, mean entertaining. It means, you know, as you just said, helping people out when they need a meal or something. And there's so many practical things to think about here. And I, I want to start with this first principle. I, I think a lot of people are like, well, I want to go make a lasagna for these people over there, but I don't want to risk the chance that I'll lose my good lasagna pan. But oh, guess yeah. what the people on the other side are thinking? They're thinking, I hope that they don't give me some lasagna pan that I and my recently replaced hip have to spend a half an hour scouring the grease off of. And that's why I always say bring disposable pans and dishes. You just said it. Make it easy to clean up, too, because 
one of the things that I always think of, nobody wants to have to remember who a dish belongs to, and like you said, scrubbing it out. Um, they can really accumulate. And so I always say, go to the dollar store. You can pick up some of those aluminum or even better now, those microwavable pans. And what I like to do, Matt, I like to bring disposable plates and utensils too. That way there's no mess at all to clean up. Um, and if you know the person's going to be laid up a while, whether it's a new mom, uh, new parents, or somebody who's not feeling well, I like to organize a team effort, and it's easy to do, you know, online now. But um, bringing food every couple days or so is good, but not just every day because, again, think about who you're bringing it to. Um, and I always bring two, you know, gargantuan amounts, so think of that too. Um, and here's the deal. You don't have to prepare the whole meal either. That sometimes makes people overwhelmed. Sometimes I'll just send a main dish or I'll, you know, do it with a friend and we each take part of the meal. So don't feel like you have to, you know, do a nine-course meal. Yeah, and on top of that, uh, Rita, I remember in churches growing up that we even had like a little committee, you know, in our church who was paying attention to who was having surgery and who was having babies and who had just had a death in the family and you could basically volunteer and say, if anything happens to anybody, even if I don't know them real well, put me on the list because I know how to bake a mac and cheese dish that's really easy and it's comfort food. And, you know, I think parishes, I mean, some parishes have mechanisms like this in place. But if you don't, I mean, it's something to talk to your pastor about. Oh, so true. You know, we have um, a pretty informal group that we have at our parishes, our little cluster as well, too. And um, so it, it, you're right, it's always good, and it makes you feel good, too, to help. And then, you know, when I, when I always, um, when I take something, I'm always aware I tell um, people, especially the new moms and dads, think about the allergies, check before making something to make sure you're not bringing over a meal that can't be eaten because somebody's sensitive to something in it or they're allergic. And it's, that's especially true for the little kids. And then if you're bringing food to a breastfeeding mom, um, I learned this the hard way. Remember that whatever nourishment she gets goes straight to the little baby. So uh, you might have to avoid real spicy foods or something that might, that might be hard for her to digest. And then I always say it's nice to ask if there are some particular no-nos, something that the recipient doesn't really like to eat, no matter how good it is for her or him. And then here's what I like to do, Matt, and you've probably done this too. I always say, hey, what have you been hungry for? And that way I know it's going to be something they want, and I won't be repeating what others might be bringing. Yeah, and, you know, it's not going to have to be some offensive thing if you're like, hey, um, yeah, we really don't like raw oysters, so don't bring a tray of those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not crazy for you to say, yeah, we're not really into that. I mean, just just be reasonable. Just remember, these are friends who want to help you. So uh, I think the other thing, and you put this in your notes, this is huge. Don't go to somebody who's heavily medicated because they just had their knee taken out and put back in and st stand there for a two-hour conversation with them after you drop off the food. Oh, so so true. I always say drop off the food, visit a while, but don't linger. Because like you just said, a lot of people just don't feel good enough. And then especially for the new moms, you know, the parents, my gosh, they're overwhelmed already. So drop the food off, visit a while, but don't linger. All right, you have so many good pack-and-take meals for here. My favorite one, because I've had this of yours a couple of different times, is your pasta fajol. Uh, give us a brief overview of this one. Oh, I love that, and that's been shared so many times, and it's really a nice meatless meal. Um, just real quick, you can do whole wheat or regular pasta, just a pound of pasta that you boil. While that's boiling, you make the sauce. It's so quick. You've got put some olive oil in a pan with some garlic, um, some diced tomatoes, 
and some dry oregano, and then some beans. I like three different kinds, like cannellini, kidney, and um, whatever other bean you like. You just cook that all up while the pasta's boiling. Smells delicious. And at the end, um, I'll throw in some handfuls of spinach or whatever greens I have. And basically, by the time the pasta's done, the sauce is done, to take it to tote, you can pack it separate. The sauce can be frozen, and I always pack a separate little container of Parmesan cheese to, to put on top. And I'll tell you, I don't know anybody who doesn't love that. It's nourishing, it's quick, it's easy, and, oh, boy, it's very good. And Rita, just to close this off, Matthew 10:42. Jesus says, If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, you will not lose your reward. I think you could even sub in, if anyone gives a warm pan of baked mac and cheese to one of these little ones, you're not going to lose your reward in heaven. Hey, that's an easy way to do it, for sure. All right, thanks so much, Rita. Have a great day. And we'll talk to you next week, Mac. Thanks for listening to the Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, resuscitation of the rosary, a fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. The kids got new supplies for back to school, so what do the parents get? Well, we suggest treating yourself to some good coffee, and the Mystic Monks of Wyoming have a number of blends to choose from. And when you link to the Mystic Monk Coffee site through our site, sonrisemorningshow.com, we earn a commission on whatever you buy. You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug and a water bottle for your kid in our online store. Check out our store and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sunrisemorningshow.com. Carry the faith wherever you go. Catch up with the latest news from Washington, D.C., the Vatican, and the world on all of our EWTN news platforms, such as the National Catholic Register, Catholic News Agency, EWTN News Nightly, EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, and EWTN News In-Depth. Download the EWTN app at EWTNapps.com today. the Sunrise Morning Show is Dan Teller. He's founder of the Good Shepherd Catholic Montessori School in Cincinnati and one of the lead catechists in the atrium there. Dan, welcome back to the Sunrise Morning Show. Thank you, Annie. It's great to be here with you. It is great to have you. And you know, one of the themes of Catholic social teaching is the dignity of work. And we're going to be talking about the dignity of work in children, not to be confused with child labor. Um, when it comes to the Montessori tradition, what is the work of the child? Montessori changes as the child changes. And so the view of the child's work 
will change according to the developmental plane of the child. Montessori saw the human person as developing through various planes of development, and the first plane is birth through six. Montessori felt like the work of the child in the first plane of development from birth to six is basically creating who they are as an individual. So it's a huge, monumental task. Then, how does a child go about doing that through the relationships that they have and through their interactions with the surrounding world? So the work of the child is the activity that the child does and spontaneously manifests as they share this great interest in the world that's around them. Montessori felt like the world was like a magnet for the young child. So, for example, you can see a baby pulling things to his or her mouth. Montessori felt like that was the child reaching out and pulling the environment to him or herself and wanting to explore it. So as children get older and are able to move and do things on their own, they're attracted to the environment, to the things they see in the environment, and to the things they see the adults doing in the world. And so the work of the child, which was your original question, would be, I want to interact with the environment, I want to do the work that I see others doing, and I want to do things that are real. One thing that Montessori experienced with children, she worked with young children for the first time. She was given a group of children in a slum tenement of Rome, and she was exploring some other techniques that she had learned about. And something she discovered is that the children were much more interested in the work of sweeping or setting the table or washing and scrubbing than they were in toys. Hmm. So she discovered that Work is not something that's a drudgery for a young child, as we as adults may experience certain chores, but that they are vitally attracted to these things because they want to interact with the environment. So that's a beginning answer to your question of what is the work of the child at the young age. Kind of like work before the fall. Yeah, that's true. It's very noble. And uh, there's not, children approach work, the young child approaches work very differently than adults. Sometimes we find work tiring. We want people to help us. But the young child approaches work as something that's refreshing. They want to do it by themselves. They do it very slowly, and they are refreshed by it. So it's it's a whole different aspect and attitude towards work and towards your activity. And so then how does the child move forward from there? Well, in the next plane of development, which would be ages 6 to 12, Montessori felt like that child is now constructing their interior mind. They're ordering ideas in their mind. They're now a rational person. They're um, working with gaining great amounts of knowledge, whereas the young child is much more physical. So always, Montessori viewed that the human person is destined to be a worker, and that is how we fulfill part of our destiny of being part of, of being on this earth. So a young child works, a young child works just because they want to. So like if in a classroom or at a home, there's a table to be scrubbed. It doesn't need to be dirty for a young child to want to scrub it. They just like the uh, activity of scrubbing. For an older child, though, it needs to be practical. There needs to be a reason for them to do the work. So if they see, you know, if work needs to be done, often children approach work with eagerness and with pleasure. In a school setting where I work, a lot of time it depends on what their peers are doing. So as children get older and birth, you know, from 6 to 12, they have much more of a peer orientation. And if they, want, if, they, if they can work alongside their friends, it's a very joyful thing for them. In the home, of course, at this age, this is when things start to become called chores. But chores aren't necessarily a bad thing. 
they're just things that now you start to see as something that needs to be done, that must be done to function well. Whereas for a younger child, it's just something that they just want to do and be active with because they want to move. Full disclosure, my kids are in Montessori. And as I have learned more about how they learn in a school environment, and this is not to denigrate any other form of education, but I have really come to be convinced that this is the truly Catholic way to educate a child, Dan. I'm sure you agree. Can you speak to that? Well, one of Montessori's hallmarks, Annie, is a great respect for the human person, for the individual, for the potential of the person, and to really orient everything we do around that understanding of who is this person in front of us. And I think we could say that the church at its core is looking at the human person created in God's image as the basic unit of reality on this earth, the the immortal soul of a person. So those two things are very much in sync. One thing that Montessori identified for the human person, and you mentioned this earlier when you referred to Adam and Eve in the garden, is that we're placed in this world with a task. And our task is to work, And our task is also to manifest our unique role in the order of creation. So we are given intelligence, we're given creativity, we're given an immortal soul, we're at the apex of creation. Montessori felt like the human has a great intelligence above any other creature, but the intelligence has to manifest itself. And the ways that the intelligence manifests itself are through two vehicles. One is language, and the other is activity and the hand, the work of the hand. So the work has almost like a spiritual quality to it because it's through work that the person manifests the unique quality of who they are in create in creation. And we can even see that in the Catholic world. If you look at a monastery, you know, the monks there are praying and they're working. So there's a great nobility to all aspects of human activity in the monastery view of the child. And I would say that's very much in line with the, the Catholic view of the, the dignity of who we are as people and our full expression of ourselves, body, mind, and soul. Well, one of the mantras that I hear so often from my kids' teachers is this idea of follow the child. And, you know, I've always found it interesting, too, that all activities that my children do when they're at school in a Montessori setting, they're all called works, Do you think that that kind of plays into this idea of human dignity and the dignity of work and instilling that sort of ethic in a child? I do. I think that it lends a great dignity to the activity of the child. That doesn't mean that Montessori viewed play as something bad. There's a quote that she once said, play is the work of the child. Mm -hmm. Activity is a good thing, but when we refer to the child's activity as their work, surely it denotes a great sense of like, this is important. What you're doing has great value and meaning in a really subtle way to the child. So I think that that language carries that connotation along with it. Well, Dan, all of our work as human beings, that is, is, is meant to be ordered toward leisure and leisure in the Catholic understanding of resting in the Lord, just as, as he rested on, on the seventh day after all of the good of creation and the work that he did there. You're one of the lead catechists in the atrium through Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. How does the work of the child fit into resting in the Lord? Well, if we look at it, not even from a spiritual perspective, 
one of the things that's common in Montessori thought is a theory called flow. Flow means that you're doing something that's really interesting to you. It requires a certain amount of skill level. And when you enter into that field of activity, you almost lose a sense of time. Mm. And all of us have experienced that through things that we love to do. If something is of high interest and challenges us to the degree that we're capable of it, we immerse ourselves in it and we lose ourselves in it. And we are completely lost in the present moment, which I think does have a spiritual quality to it. But from a more spiritual perspective in the atrium, which is the religious environment, we hope that the child's activity in that environment leads to prayer and meditation that one flows out of the other. For children of many ages, but especially the younger the child is, they need to have something in their hands to focus and to manipulate. They can't just be quite as abstract thinkers as we are as adults when they're young, but by giving them work to do, let's say they have a parable and they're manipulating sheep and a figure of the Good Shepherd, and they're recalling that scriptural text. We hope that that work, that time of being with that material, leads into a really a contemplation of, like, who is this Good Shepherd, and who are the sheep, and what's their relationship like? So in that sense, we hope that that work becomes prayer and a spiritual exercise for the child. We can't make that happen, but we can set up the conditions that make it possible for the child. It's so beautiful. We've been talking to Dan Teller, and you can find the Good Shepherd Catholic Montessori at gscmontessori.org. You can make a donation there to uh, support the work that happens at Good Shepherd Montessori. And seeing as how I am the colleague of Matt Swaim, I would be remiss to not mention Dan Teller's Journey Home episode. Learn more about his journey from Judaism to Zen Buddhism to Catholicism. Go to chnetwork.org and uh, find his story there. Dan Teller, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Annie. My pleasure. All right, that'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Hope you enjoyed the previous hour. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show praying the acts of faith, hope, and love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O my God, I firmly believe that you are one God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that your divine Son became man and died for our sins, and that he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe these and all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church teaches because you have revealed them who are eternal truth and wisdom, who can neither deceive nor be deceived. In this faith, I intend to live and die. Amen. O Lord God, I hope by your grace for the pardon of all my sins and after life here to gain eternal happiness because you have promised it, who are infinitely powerful, faithful, kind, and merciful. In this hope, I intend to live and die. Amen. O Lord God, I love you above all things, and I love my neighbor for your sake, because you are the highest, infinite, and perfect good, worthy of all my love. In this love, I intend to live and die. Amen.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim, we're heading back to the archives today to share with you some of our favorite and best interviews of days gone by. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. Matt? I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Dr. Anthony Esselange, author of a number of books, and many of you are familiar with him through the work he has done through the years for Magnificat. Dr. Esselin, good morning. Hey, good morning. So a lot of people are uh, looking back and thinking, man, I wish I'd read more books this summer. And uh, maybe they don't have a plan and want to develop one. But uh, rather than just grab a mass market paperback off a rack at the airport, or worse still, the gas station, because I've seen them there too, uh, what would be a good approach maybe to picking out a reading plan for the rest of the summer? Uh, well, um, I, I think there are, there's a lot of great Catholic and otherwise Christian novels that people um, people used to read. Uh, the were one that very popular, but uh, people have forgotten about now. Um, maybe you could pick up pick up one of those and uh, and spend the rest of the summer with them. I'm thinking particularly of the greatest Italian novel, The Betrothed, uh, by Alessandro Manzoni. I mean, if you want to if you want a novel that'll put you back in the 17th century, um, that uh, is uh, a novel about a good and faithful priest and the follies of mankind and a terrific conversion in, in that novel. I mean, one of the most powerful ever written. That's, that's the book for you. Uh, and yet most people in English-speaking countries right now haven't heard of it because, uh, you know, nobody reads old books anymore. Well, I heard about it a lot over the okay. past couple of years. <laughs> um, yeah. I didn't really, I mean, I think I probably heard it mentioned over the past maybe 20 years. I don't think yeah. I heard it mentioned much when I was a Protestant. Uh, but it really, I felt like everybody I knew was reading this book uh, when the pandemic hit, because there's some connections there as well. Oh, yeah, right, because the plague the, the plague hit Europe in 1348. They came back uh, in waves, you know, every so often, and the terrible plague year. The, the book is historically based, right? I mean, it's a, it's about a time in the early 17th century, and you get... Uh, get the, the cousin of St. Charles Borromeo, the Cardinal Federigo Borromeo, plays a big part in, in the book. And Mansoni, he did his historical research. He, he, he gives us what actually happened. It's a, it's a tremendous book. Well, if I recall correctly, uh, Pope Francis claims to have read it three times. So, <laughs> yeah. and I know he's referenced it a number of times through the course of, um, of the pandemic. But um, I, I was also thinking of another... Um, novel that Pope Francis has referenced a number of times, which I know that uh, many of our listeners are familiar with, and many of our listeners have been recommended it, but probably haven't picked it up, and that's uh, Robert Hugh Benson's Lord of the World, uh, which yeah. is a gripping read, an absolutely gripping read. It's kind of a got an apocalyptic flavor to it if you're into right. that sort of thing as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's an imagined um, end times sort of novel with a, a pulp in hiding. It's a great book, and, and while we're on Robert Hugh Benson, his his historical novel about the priests who had to hide in Elizabethan England, Come Rack, Come Rope. Yes, is, of course. Is terrific, too. 
Uh, yeah. Good for all the Edmund Campion fans out there. So That's those right. are two Absolutely. really solid yeah. ones. Um, yeah. If you if you're looking for Robert Hugh Benson's Lord of the World. Uh, this is supposed to be your suggestions, and I'm the one who suggested Lord of the World, so I apologize for stepping on your lines. But um, if there's one other book maybe you want to throw out that somebody might yeah, want to pick I, up. Yeah, I, I do. Um, actually, two. Uh, two authors I recommend to, to, to everybody. One of, the, one of them is the French. Both of them are no, Nobel laureates. Uh, one of them is the Frenchman, uh, Francois Mariac. I especially esteem... Uh, his novel, Viper's Tangle. I you know, you're the second person we've had on this summer who said that that's a, that's a go-to summer reading for them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Almost every There is one novel of his that I don't care for. Almost everything that he, he writes is gold. Viper's Tangle, you will not have read a novel like it. I, I can guarantee. The other is the author, the Polish author, who won the Nobel Prize at, right at the very beginning of, of its uh, being issued, you know, Henryk Sienkiewicz. He wrote a three-novel three epic about Poland during the time of Turkish invasion of Eastern Europe called Fire and Sword. But I think most people would, would know him for his book about uh, St. Peter. Yeah, I was about to say, isn't he the guy who Quo wrote Vadis, the... Yeah. Right, Quo Vadis. Yeah, As you were Quo saying Vadis. that, I was like, is that the same, is that the same guy? Yeah, uh, Quo yeah, Vadis is... You don't even, it's interesting, it's almost been Her-like in the sense that you don't really realize who you're reading about until you get really into it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And the thing about Sienkiewicz is that he, he, was in, he was a Polish writer at the time when Poland had ceased to exist as a political uh, entity. Poland, would, Poland only survived as Poland because of its culture and its Catholic faith. And Sienkiewicz was one of those who kept Poland alive when Poland was no longer a thing. We can imagine what the, our Polish Pope, John Paul, um, owed to men like Sienkiewicz, uh, right? Because the nation wouldn't have even been there to resurrect if it hadn't been for these uh, doggedly faithful authors saying, you know, we are, we are Catholics, we are Poles, and we're not going to let that go. Right, and even just uh, the emphasis on the, the, the powerful witness of the early church and the rootedness of Christianity yeah. amidst the sea of sort of modern ideas, just battling, you know, for the will yeah. to power. So yeah, I mean, I that's some; those are some great recommendations. Doctor Anthony Eslin, author of a number of books, and uh, I know a lot of people know you from uh, your work at Magnificat. So I would say that if you don't have any other things to read on your 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 plan, okay. at least dig into some of those essays in Magnificat because I know you've done a lot of work to try and do your best on those. Yeah, I'll recommend a, a recent book of mine called In the Beginning Was the Word. It's an annotated reading of the prologue of the Gospel of John. All right, sounds great. Dr. Esselin, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you. Have a blessed day. Thanks, you too. I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. For more than 150 years, the Komboni missionaries have served the poorest and most forgotten people. With our founders and Daniel Komboni as an inspiration, we work for the full development of the human person through evangelization, education, and advocacy. Your donations make a huge impact, and 95% are used to fund our many projects. Find out more at kombonimissionaries.org. That is kombonimissionaries.org. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. 
It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonrisemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sonrisemorningshow.com. The most original and exclusive Catholic content is on EWTN Radio. One time somebody said to me, why don't you air these people? And I said, no, because I don't think they're Catholic. He says, by what right do you have to say that? I said, I own the network. (laughs) Mother Angelica Live Classics. Every morning, 2 Eastern on EWTN Radio. With us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Father Frank Donio from the Catholic Apostolate Center. Good morning, Father Frank. Good morning, Anna. So we're continuing to dive into the National Pastoral Framework for Marriage and Family Life from the U.S. Bishops' Conference, looking at accompaniment in specific life situations. And today we are going to look at single adults. What does this document have to say about them? Well, The first and foremost thing is that there are people who have not been called to marriage, consecrated life, if a man to priesthood. And so what is this uh, this other situation where people have remained single? I, I don't know about in your family, but there were elderly relatives when I was growing up who remained single throughout Mm -hmm. their lives. And the focus that the church places on this is on the vocation of baptism, the baptismal call, and that that witness and growth and holiness that all of us are called to as a result of our baptism. Now, that's all very lofty, but the important thing is this call to prayer and service as a single person and and the giving of self to to others and the the community being present to them the parish community mm-hmm. i mean this is so important isn't it just because you're not married or not married yet you are called to the joy of love yes exactly and, and sometimes you know when people are going on about their vocational discernment and as as young people particularly and that that somehow they can't look at this as a this might be a possibility. Is it a particular vocation in the church? No, but there are a number of people, very faithful people, who are living their baptismal call and have remained single for a variety of reasons, and therefore there's this opportunity to also serve one's extended family the parish, the community around, there is that possibility for greater freedom in order to do that. 
uh, because of the the difference in terms of commitments. But at the same time, the pastoral framework does call for married couples and parish families to be mindful of single adults and to welcome them into their lives in a variety of ways. And I think that's another piece that's very important in in that it's not just simply coming from the single person, but that the the married couples, the uh, the fa- the families, the parish itself is recognizing those who are in the parish community who are single and are inviting them into a greater into greater life in that community in that particular com- those particular communities yeah so i want to talk about the people who are in the not married yet category father mm-hmm. because we live in this hyper connected world when it comes to screens but not from a face-to-face human kind of way. I mean, so many uh, particularly young people out there choosing to reject permanent commitment, choosing to reject marriage. So you have these faithful Catholic single adults who want to get married but can't find someone to marry. I mean, yes. can the parish play a role in helping them to meet each other? Because they are out there. Yes, they are out there, and, and I know some. And there is this opportunity that the parish could enter into in creating spaces and places for that to, to happen. Oftentimes, that's what happens in these various events for young adults, is that 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 creates opportunities for people to meet each other. It's a very fraught scene in terms of dating and everything else today from what younger people tell me. Mm -hmm. And it's it's very difficult and the screens maybe sometimes can can connect people i know people who have connected for example through through catholic match and things along those lines but i do think that the parish community can be more intentional about providing spaces and places for particularly young adults in their 20s very early 30s to be able to spend time with one another to be in in service with one another. And that doesn't necessarily mean, well, oh, I'm there to find a spouse. But if there's not that space and place that's created for that, how do you find people who may have similar understandings of faith and values and so forth that you do? And that is where the parish community could be and a number of parish communities are, especially in cities where there are high concentrations of young adults and young professionals, they gravitate to various parishes that will that are serving the, these young adult populations. And so there are more opportunities. But sometimes that, that's not the case in, in kind of your average suburban parish or rural parish, for example. Yeah. I want to close out the conversation talking about their role in in the church and and in family life in general because you might just sit back and think well I don't 
have a place or I, you know, I'm not called to any particular thing right now. And so then they can just sort of sit back. I don't want to say lazy, but maybe some are just being lazy. Um, Can you talk about how a single adult is called to give of themselves in service to the greater community? Yes. And that is out of the baptismal call again. If we're called to live the mission of Christ, we are called to witness him. And part of that witness is not just by what we say or by our personal daily life of holiness, but also in service to others and to those who are around us. That's true for every baptized person. But the single person may well have more opportunity to do that due to the the kinds of commitments that they might have beyond, let's say, their work. And that gives an opportunity to not be necessarily focusing on self. And this can happen in a marriage. This can happen among priests and religious as well, getting a bit more self-focused, these things that I do for myself but instead to be focused on on those who are around us and their needs and their concerns and being a presence to them, accompanying them in in a greater life of, of holiness and greater life in Christ. Yeah, I mean, because they have the bandwidth that, say, uh, a mom or a dad, for instance, or even a priest or, or religious has in terms of availability of time to give. Yes, and and that's that is often the case and when that is the case there there are those opportunities. Sometimes that that really happens when it comes to care of elderly relatives. I've seen this many many times yeah. that the single person in the family or the care of of younger children. Uh, I know in my own family there was a, a an, an aunt who was single and she did a lot of care, particularly of my younger brothers. Oh, my gosh. Father, I am only getting by in life because of that kind of yes. uh, relationship in my family. Yes. And I think that and, and in a more transient society, we don't have this as much because there aren't there isn't that extended family around us. But I, I do think that 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 is another thing that does happen. And I think it goes often very unrecognized. Uh, it, by kind of the broader community, but the service, this particular aunt, for example, Aunt Mary, she went, she was in various families within our family, my mom's side of the family, caring and raising the children, mm. helping with that, that, that aspect of life. And that is a beautiful thing. And the same thing too of, of elderly relatives. Um, and so we can't take that for granted. Yeah. It's a, that's a great gift. Thank God for those who are willing to do that in the families, for sure. We've been talking to Father Frank Donio, and you can find the Catholic Apostolate Center linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Father, thank you. Thank you, and God bless. You too, Father. Thank you very much. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. We'll be right back. It's 21 minutes past the hour. This past year has been a crazy roller coaster ride, but you have the power to get your business back on track. 
by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Weekday mornings, your message will reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners across the U.S. and around the globe who want to know more about and support Catholic businesses and organizations. To get national exposure for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. The name Jezebel has become synonymous with trouble, and the connection seems to have been well-deserved. We first hear about this princess in the middle of the Book of Kings, just before the sudden arrival of Elijah the prophet. Ahab, king of Israel, made her his wife, and as strong a monarch as he was, she seems to have been a major influence on him. As his queen, she battled the Lord's prophets, she executed an innocent man to gain his fields, she even dispatched an officer to slay the prophet Elijah. And on the day of her death, she remained the proud, unrepentant woman she had always been. When we think about Jezebel, we can only lament the blessings the people never knew because Jezebel's heart was so resistant to the good influences of God and the prophets. So, in a backward kind of way, Jezebel could serve as a model, a model of what not to become when we do not let the light of the Lord shine in our hearts. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. Happy to welcome back to the Sunrise Morning Show, Dr. Holly Ordway. She's Cardinal Francis George Professor of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute. She's visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University, author of quite a few books. The one we're talking about today is Tales of Faith, A Guide to Sharing the Gospel Through Literature. Dr. Ordway, welcome back. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on, as always. It is a pleasure to have you. Now, first off, can you just give us an overview of Tales of Faith and what all you cover in here? Well, it's basically a handbook, a sort of practical guide to help people to be able to talk about Christianity um, in general and the Catholic faith in particular to their friends, their family, their students, their neighbors um, in a way that is making use of imaginative literature. And, you know, as... (laughs) as a writer, as a reader all my life, um, there's so much of value in being able to talk about issues of faith by talking about stories and poetry. It's, it's a little bit more engaging. It's a little bit less intimidating. It's just a really good way to engage. But a lot of people kind of, they don't know how to get started. Like, well, I, you know, how, what do I pick? How do I do it? So this book is attempting to be kind of a, hey, let me walk with you and give you some some guides and some some you know, help and how you might do that. Yeah, and it's such a cool book. So you go through ancient literature, some ancient literature, some medieval literature, some late medieval literature, and then looking ahead as well. And I want to talk to you specifically about one that you have in medieval literature. It's a poem called Pearl. Can you give us the story of this beautiful poem first? Right. It's uh, it's it's a poem in which um, a man, a father, is He's weeping at the grave of his infant daughter. So it starts out with this very um, poignant vignette. 
And then he moves into a dream vision in which the little girl appears to him, and she's in heaven, and she starts to tell him about what she's experiencing. She's a queen amongst the other royalty of heaven, um, and she's describing this beautiful city, the New Jerusalem, and you know all the things that, that are ahead for him. And then he's, he's asking her questions. How can this be? You were only an infant. You died. How can you be you know, a queen? And, and we, they have this wonderful dialogue, and then eventually he gets so sort of over-eager that he tries to stumble across the stream that's bridging it. Um, he wakes up, and he's, he's grieving that he has now lost the vision. Um, so we have this dream framework of the grieving man around this beautiful conversation with the little girl that gives this powerful imaginative vision of what, what heaven is like. Um, so he wants to be there. That's the key point. He wants to be there with his little girl. Yeah, you know, you make the point in the book that we always need to be careful when we're talking about, say, dreams concerning the experience of eternal life. But that said, what do we learn about heaven from this poem? Well, we learn that it's that it's beautiful, that it's that's full of life and it's full of activity. That's, I think, one of the most powerful things about this poem. It's it sounds like an interesting place to be. There's all the people enjoying fellowship amongst each other. There's, you know, beautiful landscape. It's the kind of thing that it, we're not just seeing people <laughs> sitting on harp, you know, sitting on clouds, strumming harps. Um, you know, this sort of stereotypical, but all too common sort of baseline idea of people tend to think of heaven as static and boring, and then they feel guilty that they don't feel excited about it, or they, if they're not Christians, they just feel dismissive of it. And one of the great things about Pearl is that it, it gives us a picture that is engaging, like, oh, wow, I'd like, I'd like to be there, like the, like the father in the, in the dream vision. He, he wants to go there, even though, you know, being you know, alive, <laughs> he can't get there quite yet. But it's, it's desirable, and it's dynamic. I think that is possibly the most profound thing about it. Can you talk more about the dynamism of heaven? Well, I think, you know, we tend to, as, as Christians, I think we tend to get a little stuck on the idea of perfection, you know, sinlessness as being somehow flat, static, boring, like, well, what's there to do? And, of course, it'll be the complete opposite. We'll be free to use all of our gifts. We'll be free to fully enjoy interacting with other human beings, you know, without having to worry about, you know, sinning against them. So the idea of light, of music, of movement, of dance, all of these things better capture what heaven will really be like than, than I think are often quite static images of, of well, goodness, perfection. So that's one of the things I like about it. There's these, there are processions in this New Jerusalem. People are, you know, they're enjoying the outdoors. They're, they're part of a, a, a dynamic, living, heavenly environment. Yeah, just to read a little bit from here um, to sort of illuminate what you're saying. He writes, The lamb's delight was clearly seen, though a bitter wound he had to bear. So glorious was his gaze serene, it gladdened all who beheld him there. I looked where that bright host had been, how charged with life, how changed they were. And then I saw my little queen that I thought but now I had stood so near. Lord, how she laughed and made good cheer among her friends who was so white. To rush in the river then and there, I longed with love 
and great delight. You know, I was at a funeral fairly recently for an infant and was really struck by uh, the, the prayer of commendation and knowing that this child who had, had been baptized was enjoying heaven as, as we were there mourning his loss. And, and in the prayer, it pray, we prayed that, that this loss of the child would, would allow his parents to desire heaven all the more, knowing that he was there. And I think that that really comes out in this poem. Absolutely. And one of the things that's beautiful about it is that it's also very honest about the father's grief. I mean, it opens and closes with him weeping at her grave. So the hope of heaven doesn't trivialize the fact that we miss our loved ones who have died. We're sad that they're not here right here now with us. And that's real and it's honest and it's good. And yet, as Christians, we can objectively be certain that, you know, this, this infant is in heaven. Anyone who's died in friendship with God, we know that they are going to be there. And that's a, a great consolation and a joy that doesn't cancel out the sadness, but it, it, it gives us that, well, that genuine hope. And I think that's one of the things that Pearl does so well, and I wanted to bring forward to, to modern readers, that it, it gets both of those things. Um, it doesn't trivialize the father's grief, but it also gives a really powerful vision of, of the love that he has for her that, you know, that will be fulfilled. She's, she's all right. She's better than all right. And she's waiting for him eventually to join her in that delight in heaven. And that balance, I think, is the kind of thing we need to be sharing a bit more fully with people. And it's going to be hard to do that by just talking to people abstractly. You know, let's talk about heaven. Wait, what? (laughs) But if you can have a poem that you can show, I read this, I read this really moving piece, um, you know, maybe you'd like to talk about it. That opens up an invitation to let people experience this, this imaginative vision without being confused about it. Because as you noted before, you know, descriptions of what heaven is like can be a little theologically dodgy, but this is being a dream vision. The poet's extremely clear He's not describing it like this is how it is. He's saying this is what it will be like. This is how it feels. This is not a you know, a video camera, to use an anachronism, of, of heaven. It's a vision of it. And I think that makes it so that we can have confidence in sharing and talking about it, because we're not, we're not saying, well, this is exactly what you will see. We're saying, oh, this is what you like, and let's talk about what that experience will be. Most definitely, and really just tapping into that desire, as you were saying. Okay, so the, uh, the the subtitle of your book, A Guide to Sharing the Gospel Through Literature. Well, this poem literally shares the gospel quite a bit, doesn't it? It does. And not all of the um, poems and excerpts that I include in it are explicitly Christian. I mean, I include some um, from the Greek myths, for instance, from pagan literature, because there's a lot that can be helpful when you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, if you can talk about, you know, something like a, a myth and show the way, oh, you know, there are things it says about human nature and our longing for God that that are true. They mean, there are a lot of things that are mistaken, but there are a lot of things that are hitting on real insight. Yeah. And in the book, I've got excerpts um, from the, all the poems and works that I talk about, and I have discussion questions um, and recommended reading. So it's really a, a place to get started and hopefully give opportunities for a lot more exploration as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. But um, looking at Pearl specifically, just one last question in that regard, Dr. Ordway. Can you talk about the significance of the name Pearl? Oh, uh, well, Pearl is a, is a bit of an allusion um, tucked in there to the Pearl of Great Price, you know, the Jesus' parable where, you know, the merchants in search of fine pearls finds the one Pearl of Great Price and, and sells everything he has to, to get it. And so Pearl, it's an actual name. Um, you know, it's actually the name Margaret means Pearl. So it's a real name, but it also gives a little echo there to those who have ears to hear that this vision of heaven that she is sharing is what we should, you know, drop everything, you know, sell everything, do everything to get, because it is truly the pearl of great price. And she's wearing those pearls in the poem, right? Exactly. So it's it's got all these little, you know, nuances to kind of remind the reader and give these, these visual images, you know, because the pearl itself also is beautiful. Um, so these little images as well as, you know, reminders in the name, like, yes, heaven, we should hope for heaven because it will be better than we can imagine. We've been talking to Dr. Holly Ordway, and you can find her book, Tales of Faith, A Guide to Sharing the Gospel Through Literature, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. We've been talking about the medieval poem, Pearl. Dr. Ordway, really appreciate your reflections this morning. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And of course, you can find all of our guests on a daily basis linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on the side of the page, and then you can get all that information emailed to you every morning as we go on the air. That's at sonrisemorningshow.com. It's 35 minutes past the hour. It's back to school time and back to a busier morning routine. If you're going to need some help to get going, get yourself a few bags of Mystic Monk coffee. And when you go to the Mystic Monk site through the link you find at sunrisemorningshow.com, you'll give us a boost with a commission on your purchase. While you're at our site, pick up a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug and perhaps a water bottle for your student. All available in our online store. Find our store and link to Mystic Monk coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. What does the church say about infant baptism? The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children. Since baptism is the entry to the church, it is only logical that babies are baptized to put them in possession of what God has given as their natural right. Infant baptism gives us an unquestionable affirmation of a basic fact of our Christian faith, That is, our faith and our salvation are not ours to choose or earn, but are gifts from God. It also reminds parents and godparents of their duty to bring children up to understand and follow the teachings of the church as Christ taught. Parents who opt to let their children make their own decisions about what religion, if any, they will choose later in life fail to grasp the responsibility they share in the salvation of their children. For many parents, carrying out this responsibility to raise their children in the ways of the church aids them in living out their own faith. For more information, contact your local pastor or refer to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1250 through 1252. For Sacred Heart Radio, This is Deacon Bill Mullaney.
It is time for Bible Foods, and today we talk about cabbage with Rita Heikenfeld from abouteating.com. Rita, good morning. Good morning, and it's a good, timely topic. Well, and there's a lot of people wanting some coleslaw recipes, but uh, we don't really see cabbage in the Bible, but it's kind of one of those things that was sort of everywhere, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, you know, you're right. It's not specifically mentioned in the Bible, Matt, but um, I think it's like so many of them we call our vegetables the heirloom ones. Um, Cabbage does have an ancient history, and when I was researching it, I found out that cabbage was eaten by the Greeks and Romans, both as food and medicine, And it's been cultivated for more than 4,000 years, believe it or not, and domesticated with uh, sort of what we call the former uh, cabbage that we call cabbage today, rather, over 2,500 years ago. So, yeah, it's really an ancient veggie. Now, was that ancient uh, cabbage as, well, I guess the word is compact as and dense as the cabbages we find today? No, um, first of all, think of the climate, because the cabbage of Bible times, especially in the Mediterranean, was a more wilder type, more loose leaf, sort of like romaine, I would think. And it didn't head up hard and large like the cabbage we have today, since, again, the climate there was warmer. And when you think of cabbage and all those um, cruciferous veggies, it's a cool weather uh, crop. And then the, the hard-headed varieties, what we know as cabbage today, those were cultivated in the cooler parts of, of northern Europe. And then they really got popular pretty quick. And when you think about it, the reason is cabbage produced a large harvest in a relatively short growing season. So it was um, a really good, healthy addition when you think of the meager diet of, of the country folk. So, yeah, it became very popular pretty quick. I mean, even today, uh, you can feed a lot of people with the cabbage. So without spending a whole lot of money. But the Romans and the Greeks, how did they eat it? Oh, it's so interesting. They ate cabbage soaked in vinegar, sort of like, I guess, a slaw. But they did that before they had like a a fun, what they called a fun evening of heavy drinking. Um, And the accepted remedy for a Roman hangover was just simply more cabbage. And then Caesar's armies actually carried cabbage with them, and they used it not only for food, but they bound wounds uh, with the leaves to reduce infection. And when you think of the old-fashioned cabbage poultices that our grandmas used, that was that same thing. Um, and one of the reasons is cabbage actually has antibacterial properties, and it reduces inflammation. So I'm thinking back in my grandma's day, um, it would make sense to use the leaves as a kind of poultice. All right, any other good health tips from cabbage? Well, when you think about um, any cruciferous vegetable, as I said before, um, they have a lot of good anti-cancer properties. It's also good for a sore throat. And my uh, father-in-law used to drink uh, sauerkraut juice, cabbage juice, and he would buy it in little cans, and he said it was really, really good for your tummy. So there you go, a wonderful, really a peasant veggie that has health qualities, and tastes good, too. All right. Now, I am not going to be drinking sauerkraut juice just straight up, I don't think, (laughs) with my morning coffee. But, uh, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about some slaw ideas. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I know you and Annie have made this, and probably your mom. Um, It's the old-fashioned, they call it the Raymond Noodle Coleslaw or the Picnic Slaw. And you start out with Raymond Noodles, and I'm sharing two recipes. One uses the seasoning packet, and one... I always say is for the more purist among you, does not use it. But it's basically, uh, you can use a coleslaw mix or Chinese cabbage, whatever. 
a bell pepper, um, and some of the Raymond noodles, and some sunflower seeds and some slivered almonds, and if you want some sesame seeds and then some green onions. That's your basic salad. Now, the ingredients for the two different dressings are a little bit different. Uh, they both use oil and sugar and vinegar, and one uses the two seasoning packets and some soy sauce, and the other one um, uses soy sauce and some sesame seed oil. So not to be confusing, but both are really delicious, and you're right with Memorial Day coming up. It's just that, like Annie said, she doesn't like to waste, so she would probably use the one with the seasoning packets, the Raymond noodles, the chicken-flavored, and then there doesn't use the seasoning packet. But in my um, older recipes, it's interesting would um, it says to take the noodles and the almonds that are in there and sometimes the sesame seeds and um, saute them in a little butter until they're golden and use that for the salad. Have you ever done that, or do you just use it all, just mix it all up? I just mix it all up usually. But uh, as you're thinking about this, you know, I don't eat slaw by itself very often. I like it on stuff or in stuff. So you ever put slaw on a chili dog, Rita? Well, that sounds delicious. So now, now you got something else that you can do when you're grilling stuff out this summer. Uh, and, of course, on fish tacos, a good slaw is hard to beat. Can't you beat that. That's, yeah, that sounds delicious. Okay, another new recipe for us. Thank you so much, Rita Heikenfeld. Have a wonderful day. Well, and I'll talk to you next week. I'm Matt Swain. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. The kids got new supplies for back to school, so what do the parents get? Well, we suggest treating yourself to some good coffee and the Mystic Monks of Wyoming have a number of blends to choose from. And when you link to the Mystic Monk Coffee site through our site, sonrisemorningshow.com, we earn a commission on whatever you buy. You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug and a water bottle for your kid in our online store. Check out our store and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sunrisemorningshow.com. EWTN. Teaching the truth. Thank you so much for all that you do. And your mother Angelica and her words will never forget the first shows on television when I found her. And that led me to the radio station. I'm an eight-year homeschooling mom. I'm a veteran of doing this for a long time. What encouraged me was this beautiful nun named Mother Angelica. And one day she said, well, if you don't like the school, why don't you just pull them out and homeschool them? Happy to welcome back to the Sunrise Morning Show, Amy Giuliano. She's a digital media specialist for the Institute of Catholic Culture. She has degrees in theology from the Angelicum in Rome and art history from Yale 
and regularly contributes sacred art essays to the Magnificat. She's founder of Vadis VR, which provides virtual tours of sacred sites. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Annie. We are going to take a little virtual tour, so to speak, of a beautiful chapel in Paris known as Sainte-Chapelle. It was built by King Saint Louis IX of France. Why did King Louis want to build this church? So Saint Louis IX, he was a deeply devout king of France, and he actually acquired the relics of Christ's crown of thorns from his cousin, uh, the Latin Emperor of Constantinople, Baldwin II. And so he commissioned the the building of the Sainte-Chapelle, functioning as a a reliquary, a really beautifully ornate reliquary for such a precious artifact. So veneration of the crown of Christ was kind of the French king's way of showing allegiance to the king of kings. And we know that during the fire in Notre Dame in 2019, the crown um, was saved from Notre Dame. So it was housed in Sainte-Chapelle for many years, up until the the French Revolution, and very wisely was hidden at that time, later put on display in Notre Dame, and then it did survive the fire. Wow. Now, for those who have not looked at a picture of Sainte-Chapelle, how was a church like that built in the 13th century? Sure. (laughs) It's quite impressive. So I do teach art history, and I try to tell my students The two things you need to remember about the Gothic period and Gothic art and architecture, you're going to think of height and light. How did they achieve these soaring high buildings and the beautiful light that floods into them? Well, before uh, before and during, really, the 11th century, churches were built in a style called Romanesque, and it's kind of characterized by the use of heavy stone columns, rounded arches, barrel vaults, um, and these rounded arches, they were kind of necessary to support the immense weight of these structures. The structures feel very grounded. So the period that followed the Romanesque uh, was the Gothic, and we see in the emergence of the Gothic style, uh, there are some new and more advanced techniques and innovations that were also emerging. Uh, They came together for the first time in France, especially with Abbot Suger of uh, Saint-Denis. If you go, it's still in Paris. It's the burial place of the French kings. Beautiful church. And he kind of introduces this new Gothic style. And one of the great innovations and kind of the key innovation of the Gothic style that allowed a church like that to be built about 100 years later was the development of the the pointed arch. So because of the pointed arch, Gothic churches were able to have much larger windows than had previously been possible. So how do you get light into these churches? That was a real interest. To get light in, you build high walls for like like a really vast open space within. You're going to build these strong interlocking ribbed vaults with pointed arches above. And again, that's going to direct the weight down without relying so much on the walls for support. And you're going to brace those walls from without, not from within. So you're going to think of like the the flying buttresses outside mm-hmm. of the structure to push up on those walls to, to reinforce them. And then when you don't have those weighty, thick walls, uh, you're not relying on them, uh, you can replace them with glass. So you get these tall, airy windows. So that's how they did it, these 
amazing architectural innovations allow them to. Wow. Real pure use of faith and reason, I think, when, <laughs> uh, or faith and science, I guess you could say. That's that's so incredible. So when you look at Saint-Chapelle, the first thing you have to think of are all of those stained glass windows. What all is mm-hmm. pictured in them? Sure. They're presenting the scenes of Christian history in chronological order from the book of Genesis, and through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and they even include scenes of uh, Louis IX processing with the crown of thorns, his acquisition of the relics, and then his procession to Saint-Chapelle with the relics. So they kind of go from Genesis all the way through history up until that point. And then the rose window on the western end uh, features scenes from the end of time. The Sistine Chapel, I'd say, is, is the best comparison where we see all of salvation history kind of arcing above us and culminating in the last judgment on the Western Wall. Uh, That's what we're seeing at Saint-Chapelle. Amy, what is it like to step into this church? Oh my goodness. (laughs) So when you enter the main chapel, you're in a room where the walls are made almost entirely of glass. So it feels kind of otherworldly as this natural daylight is shining through on the windows and bathing the entire church in kind of like a pinkish, purplish glow, kind of bluish sometimes. It depends on the light. That's what's so interesting. Um, It's like walking through a kaleidoscope, a prism, because the light is is kind of changing as the sun is arcing across the sky. The clouds are rolling in and out. It's a very dynamic experience. The architects are, they engaged with the natural phenomenon of light to uh, bring the space to life through this interaction of light with colored glass. So the walls uh, there, let's see, I can remember all my numbers. There's over 7,200 square feet of glass. Um, That's not even counting the rose window at the end. (laughs) Yeah, gosh. I know. And then they're divided into these 15 stained glass bays. So 15 big bays of stained glass. Each are about 50 feet high. And Throughout the space, you have over 1,100 stained glass panels within the windows. I'm depicting these different scenes, again, that I said from from Genesis onwards. And I think what's interesting about that, especially for us, us as Catholics, is to think about the metaphysics of light, the theology behind the kind of the why. Why are they doing this? We, We talked about the innovations and how they were able to do it, but why did they want to make a space that's so filled with light. And we think about 1 John 1, 5, God is light. In his light we see light. That's from uh, Psalm 36. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. Of course, that's John's prologue. We know that God dwells in unapproachable light. That's from the scriptures. And created light is a really powerful metaphor for the uncreated light of God. So the architects, they were aiming to flood this interior with light, both clear and colored, and fill the interior with, um, if you go in, you see gold, jewels, polychrome, I mean, painted statues, accents of gold leaf. So everything inside is going to also be reflecting this light. So we have the verticality of the structure that's that's raising the, the mind and heart to, to soar to the heights, to seek the things that are above. Uh, you have the beauty of this space, it's directing our gaze to beauty himself, and, and the light that's pouring in, it's transporting us from material things to immaterial things. Um, I like to note that 
Aquinas, he has a few uh, different adjectives to describe something that's considered beautiful. Um, and one of the things that it must have, he says, is claritas, clarity, radiance, luminosity. And that's key here at Saint Chapelle. So, uh, I mean, even after all of that, Amy, if you're taking someone on a tour of Saint-Chapelle or if you got the chance to to put together a, a virtual tour through uh, Vadis VR of, of Saint-Chapelle, are there, is there anything else in, that you would highlight in this church? Sure. So it would be amazing to make a virtual reality tour of this particular space because when you look at a photograph, so a two-dimensional image, um, you can't capture this sense of being walled in by light, being immersed in it, kind of enveloped in it. Um, and, of course, it's always better to experience it in person. Sure. Uh, but for those who can't visit, a VR tour would allow people to get a sense of really the grandeur of the space, get a sense of your size relative to the space around you as you're looking around. And this is important because Saint-Chapelle, it's a very particular experience. You're really enveloped in this luminous color, um, and you get the sense that you're standing inside of a jewel box. It's an immersive experience. Mm. I would also point out a few little quirky details, I think. I always love, and you see this in other churches as well, that the statues of the Twelve Apostles are found within these engaged pillars in the chapel. I love that because it's a reference to the fact that these men, they are the pillars that support the structure of Holy Mother Church. I also really love chapels like this one that have a field of stars as the ceiling. So you have this deep blue ground background with gold leaf stars just strewn across the entire ceiling. And it looks like the night sky. And you see this in other chapels as well. Actually, the Sistine Chapel was originally done in this style before Michelangelo painted it. And it represents the fact that the heavens are coming to hover over this sacred space where heaven and earth are going to meet on the altar in the Eucharist. And what else would I highlight? Well, outside, the peaks of the roofline make the chapel look like a crown. So it's reminding us of the great relic inside. Um, and the gargoyles. <laughs> I always am fascinated by these little grotesque creatures and figures that kind of peer down at you from the heights of these Gothic cathedrals and, and whatnot. But obviously this is a chapel, not a cathedral. But you do see these gargoyles, and I find it interesting their function has to do with their name. Um, so gargoyle, it, it comes from an old French word, which means throat. And that's because they're rain spouts. (laughs) Many of them are are rain spouts. Some of them are decorative, but many of them are rain spouts. And so I I remember uh, walking through Paris in the middle of an absolute downpour and seeing the gargoyles just spitting out, spewing water. Um, So it's related to our word to gargle. So I find that a cute detail. We've been talking to Amy Giuliano. I hope somebody associated with Saint-Chapelle is listening right now and contacts you to do a virtual reality tour of Saint-Chapelle one of these days. We've got Vadis VR linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Amy Giuliano, it was a real joy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amy. That'll do it for this edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thank you for listening. 
For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.